Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about seafood and uh, fisheries ecosystem management. And we're going to lead into the importance of planning, and one of the planning tools we have is the National Ocean Policy. My guest today is John Williamson. John is consultant and activist on fishing, on fisheries conservation. He's a former commercial fisherman. He currently is a charter boat captain, and John and I served together as uh, members of the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Council. Hi, John. Hey, Rob. Um, so when I called you for this show, I ended up talking to you at sea on Monday a few days ago. Um, how was the voyage, and what was the voyage? Well, we were having a great day that day. I uh, was finishing up... Uh contract with Boston University Marine Program and taking out uh, some of their undergraduates in marine biology. Uh, We were doing um, biological sampling, which means that we had fishing poles and we were catching fish and then bringing them on board and sampling various tissue samples and other things for their research projects. So So you set out of Situate, Massachusetts? Yeah, we were working out of Citra, and we were fishing uh, in the sanctuary. Uh, we were observing observing life in the sanctuary, not just fish, but we were looking at seabirds and whales and keeping track of uh, what we were seeing. It's, it's a fun project. We do it uh, every year three, for three weeks, and it's an introduction for uh, many of these students uh, to the marine environment. And how many miles did you go out? Oh, we were out about 25 miles. Wow. Sanctuary is... Offshore. Oh, we were right just in the middle of the bank, too. It's a long way to go to get to the other side. And what fish did you sample? Let's see. We were catching codfish, pollock, redfish, dogfish. Uh, we even had a tuna alongside. And uh, are you going to eat all those fish, or what happens to them? <laughs> well, they weren't for me. <laughs> no, they, this is for biological sampling and research. So you take measurements, and um, but it's not a catch and release program. Uh, well, in the, uh, in the case of some species, yes, catch, take uh, take pictures, take uh, links, and and then let them go again. So this isn't depleting the cod stocks. No, no. Oh, good. Phew. Um, so um, let's um, let's see. Well, we are on the topic of seafood, I guess, um, and marine life. Um, tell us some more about that. Well, I, I have specific uh, things I wanted to touch on today. The, um, I mean, we could get down into the weeds and talk about the specifics of fishery management in uh, New England. I mean, there's certainly a lot of things in the news right now, but um, I'd, I'd actually like to take a step backwards and talk to your listeners about uh, uh, to look at fisheries in this country at a 30,000-foot level for a few minutes. and because I, th- I think it's a story that doesn't get a lot of play, and I think people need to have a basic understanding of how we manage fisheries because the fact of the matter is that fisheries are a public trust resource and mm. that, uh, those, that natural resource of wild fish stocks off of our coast belongs to the people of the United States. And how we manage them actually has, uh, you know, economic repercussions and, and food choice repercussions for the American public. So uh, uh, I'd like to give a little bit of that story, and that help, will help to, to frame some of the issues that we have over the long run, which is in ocean planning. But um, and I, I, 
And I, I think the, the story really starts with about 40 years ago. We had, uh, at that point, uh, we had uh, large vessels from other countries that were fishing off the, both the Atlantic coast of the United States and the North Pacific coast of the United States, factory trawlers, trawlers that were based in Soviet Union and uh, South Korea and Poland and uh, other countries that were uh, harvesting la- you know, large amounts of seafood, wild fish that were uh, you know, along our coast. And at that point, the United States uh, decided to take action, and they established, uh, they extended U.S. jurisdiction 200 miles offshore. So in 1976, passage of the Magnuson Act did several things, the first being that it extended U.S. economic jurisdiction offshore. And it said, uh, we're going to now take responsibility for management and conservation of fish stocks within that 200-mile exclusive economic zone. It also means that we also, over time, will exploit mineral resources and other resources in that 200-mile exclusive economic zone as well. But that's part of the story that that's still playing out. Um, so in, in creating that 200-mile limit and uh, managing fisheries, over the course of years, we've been learning how to manage these fisheries sustainably. I mean, they were substantially... Fish stocks were substantially depleted under the foreign, by the foreign fishing vessels. Um, they started to bounce back. Then we uh, made an economic investment in American fisheries, and we've had some difficulties in that balancing the economic investment of U.S. fisheries and the sustainability of the resource. We've learned over the years that there are some very fairly strict ecological limits as to what we can take out of the ocean. And we've been developing our science capabilities so to better understand the state of these wild resources off our coast. And so we've learned a lot in the 38-year period since the passage of Magnuson Act. Uh, we've developed a lot of science infrastructure. And, um, um, and the net result is, is that we have learned... Uh, better how to manage fisheries sustainably. And that has led, that, that those advances in science has led to changes and updating of the law, Magnuson Act, now the Magnuson-Stevens Act, uh, so that at this point, in U.S. fisheries, we have some of the strictest standards for managing fisheries of any country in the world. And, uh, and we're moving into a regime now in the next uh, couple of years to this period, 2012 to 2014, when it'll be a requirement under the law that all fisheries managed uh, in, in the United States waters will meet the, these very strict standards designed to achieve uh, a sustainable resource base and ultimately healthy marine ecosystem. Um, the, the, the aspects of the law that, that, you know, are, are really novel and, uh, and the strength of the law is, is that requires for sustainability first that we manage for very large population levels and that if the population levels aren't at a high level, it's stable, then, then the question we have to ask is, are they, are these populations growing? So a good mystery management plan has in it uh, controls on how much fish we can catch so that we can ensure that those population levels are either stable or growing. Uh, so, uh, and, and in order to achieve those, those um, controls on catch, we have to have a good science infrastructure to tell us, uh, to give us a, a good picture on, on what we're taking out of the ocean, and we have to have accountability measures and monitoring systems in place. So, uh, our fisheries in the United States all require these aspects under the law now, and we're and we're putting those investments in place now, okay, to manage for sustainable seafood. And what that means for the country is that it actually is contributing to our national food security. Uh, seafood is a very big source of protein for the country, 
and potentially uh, uh, in a well with well managed fisheries on all on our coast, it could be an even larger protein source than it is now. Um, and so that's a major contributor to our national food security. What that is bumping up against, and what I'd like to talk about over the program, is uh, other other industrial activities that are now moving into the ocean sphere, moving into this 200-mile economic, exclusive economic zone, the outer continental shelf. And those things include things like um, energy exploration and energy development. Um, and that we have to make sure that uh, that these, the move to create energy security for the nation doesn't compromise our sustainable seafood and our food security for the nation. So that's and that's the the, uh, the trade-offs that we that we're faced with. Well, John, let me emphasize a point that I think you're making is that you're saying that because of the Mags and Stevens and all the deliberations and efforts that we now have a sustainable fisheries, pretty much. Uh, I, I, I think it's safe to say we're moving strongly uh, toward having sustainable fisheries on all the coasts of this country. Right. Atlantic Coast, Gulf of Mexico, in the, and in the Pacific. And so, you know, because everyone badmouths the fisheries, but um, because no one ever gets completely what they want, whatever it be. And uh, so that is important uh, to understand, is that we are approaching sustainability, and and so all the more concern for the problems that you're about to go into. That's right, and and people have to understand that this has been a matter of, uh, I mean, a matter of policy by the by the nation as an investment. I mean, we have invested in the infrastructure for creating science that gives us a better picture of what's in the ocean, and at the same time that the fishing communities in this country have invested in uh, in in the. Their in, in their infrastructure and in their capacity and to keep a, to make a balanced approach to uh, the economics of fishing, so our communities have a very big investment in uh, in uh, sustainable fishing. And so, it's paying I mean, off with great seafood on the market. I mean, there's great stuff to eat now because they're bringing the fish in fresh and and all that stuff is you know all Absolutely. working and, a, and in a wide array of species as well. Yeah. Okay, so you were going to talk about the um, energy. Well, national ocean policy uh, specifically. I mean, we. Um, uh, well, yes. I mean, some of the things that we're seeing now. I mean, moving in, in recent decades and more so into the future is that we're seeing other industrial activities moving into the ocean environment. Uh, this has been made possible by advances in materials technology, uh, advances in uh, things like robotic technology, uh, uh, underwater vehicles that can operate remotely, um, that have made the capability for industrial development in uh, these offshore environments. And another thing that people often overlook is there's the worldwide capital flows that we have now, uh, ca- you know, capital looking to make large-scale infrastructure investments. So the result is that you get things like uh, uh, offshore uh, deep water uh, oil exploration and drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, or uh, what we're beginning to see now on the east coast of the United States is uh, investment in uh, 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 development of um, uh, offshore wind power, uh, uh, wind farms. Um, there's a there's a proposal now for a, uh, uh, a connector, a, 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 an electric power grid connector that will link. The New York, New York City, and Newark, New Jersey uh, industrial complex to sources of cheap power coming out of the Tennessee Valley, and that'll be a a large uh, conduit of uh, of uh, energy transmission that'll be off, located offshore, uh, running from off the coast of New York all the way down to Chesapeake Bay. So these are things that uh, we're seeing here on the East Coast and the West Coast. We're they're starting to explore the possibilities of, of uh, wave power uh, being generated, uh, uh, generating electricity off the coast of Oregon. So there's projects that are starting to go into the water, 
uh, on all three coasts, and uh, and we're and inevitably we'll see more of that sort of thing as in the times ahead, and how that will interact with marine ecology that supports fisheries, and how that will place constraints on fishermen uh, is uh, is something that we've yet to see. We've yet, that's part of the story that we've yet to address, and that's where planning will play a big key. Yes, and that's, that's good to have lots of voices involved in that kind of planning, because they bring in different perspective and demand more robust solutions as we discover, you know, what a public trust resource the ocean is and how that there are users we're not usually aware of um, who have, whose needs have to be addressed before you can do something industrial like install a, a windmill or a tidal power or an oil rig. I mean, absolutely. I mean, one of the, I mean, just to give an example of, um, of um, uh, you know, the, the sorts of you know, uh, trade-offs that are involved. I mean, we were all familiar with the Deepwater Horizon disaster uh, three years ago in, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Um, but one of the one of the parts of the story that isn't told is, is that the, the oil spill and the and the subsequent uh, massive cleanup that was required happened at the to coincide with, the, with the, at the very same time with spawning for the bluefin tuna population. And the, the uh, Gulf of Mexico is the, core, the the key spawning ground for bluefin tuna in the uh, western Atlantic. And in fact, it's the only spawning area that we are aware of in the western uh, Atlantic for bluefin tuna. That corresponded with the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, and we don't know what that now what the implications are for an entire year class of bluefin tuna uh, in that population in the Atlantic. So it's uh, and and we'll know and we'll see that probably uh, the repercussions of that in uh, population levels in the, in the next over the next four or five years. So it's uh, you know those these uh, industrial activities actually can have profound effects on. Uh, on um, uh, uh, wild ecosystems, uh, unless we have con- uh, controls and uh, standards in place uh, to police how we use those, uh, how we use the environment. Yeah, it's unexpectedly broad. The implications, you know, that you're talking about bluefin tuna that we know locally as Boston bluefin tuna, and. Here they are being impacted by something on the other side of Florida in the Gulf of Mexico. We just forget that we think everything's local. You know, it's New England seafood and stuff, and how the, the oceans are so connected with each other, uh, and the populations move much broader than land populations do and stuff. And then, of course, you have a whole problem of bioaccumulation up the food chain, where you've got tuna fish being a seventh or eighth level trophic level feeder and stuff. So these are very complex issues that uh, remarkably, you know. And, and, the, and the thing that, that the listeners have to really keep in mind is, is that uh, fisheries are the last wild capture hunting uh, experience for the human race on the planet. I mean, we are, uh, it's, not, it's not agriculture, it's not cultivation. Fisheries, wild capture fisheries exist in a in a ocean wilderness, and they depend on the attributes of wilderness for the uh, marine ecology that supports fisheries to be healthy and uh, to and, and to optimize and maximize productivity of that ocean environment. So, uh, you know, is that uh, is that consistent with commercial and industrial development in these uh, on the outer continental shelf? Only time will tell, and only good planning will uh, will uh, mitigate uh, any impacts that uh, that might occur from industrial activities. Right, and it's so easy to say that fish populations are declining due to overfishing, when we know that there are environmental factors that make life difficult for fish. That they may be, you know, becoming too slimy from algae growth and nitrogen pollution, or they, they may be becoming too infertile from toxic accumulation and stuff. Uh, so there's so many factors that go into uh, a robust uh, fish stock. 
I mean, a- absolutely. I mean, I, um, uh, you know, the, uh, one of the things that is in the works right now in fishery planning here in the Northeast is that the, the identification of, uh, uh, habitats of, of particular concern, uh, essential fish habitats, but habitats of particular concern are ones that, that really drive the ecological processes. Yeah, John, we're going to have to take a short break, and I want to come back after the break and talk more about um, your work on your perspective on habitats for fish. Good enough. Thank you. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with John Williamson, a former commercial fisherman, a current uh, commercial boat captain, and a member of the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Committee. Uh, John, you were telling us about um, the importance of habitat, and uh, we were also talking about uh, how um, industrial developments have not been a good thing. Uh, yeah, I just I was starting to mention that uh, you know one uh, another aspect of importance planning in a marine environment is just that interaction between uh, coastal development and uh, and these wild resources that uh, we're trying to that we're trying to um, uh, steward. Uh, and one of the things that has become very evident over the last decade is the, the effects of coastal development on. Uh, on early life stages of uh, many of the key commercial fish species that we depend on both recreationally and commercially. Um, and why is that? Happen, happen in the coastal environment within the first 10 or 20 meters of depth, starting at uh, starting in the estuaries and uh, and along our uh, immediate coast. So the those areas of shallow water where the sunlight can drive productivity, uh, larval fish depend on those and do their initial grow out uh, uh, in those protected waters. And uh, and that those whether those baby fish survive and get to uh, a larger stages has a lot to do with whether there are plentiful fish stocks for commercial and recreational fishing. 
uh, as uh, in the adult stages. So it's uh, there's a very close connection to how we manage uh, in at municipal level uh, in coastal development and whether we have healthy fisheries. And we've seen horrific increases in uh, nitrogen pollution um, affecting ocean life uh, to the point that nitrogen is considered the worst pollutant of oceans. Um, as you know, nitrogen is part of the nutrients of fertilizers and sewage and those types of things that come off the land and go into the ocean and cause algae to bloom and eutrophication and eating up of the oxygen and uh, red tide, you know, those critters need n- nutrients to bloom. And so if there's a slug of that stuff coming in when they want to bloom, you get a red tide. And um, we also got to the point of these ocean dead zones where there's so much eutrophication that there's no oxygen. And fish can be observed like stripers chasing bait fish into a dead zone and both rolling up dead because of the lack of oxygen in this part of the ocean. So it's really important that not only do fishermen behave well, but that we uh, change our practices on the land to uh, reduce these negative impacts we're having on it. And for more information about our nitrogen campaign at OceanRiver.org uh, is the place to go um, for more information about that. And that and that is you know absolutely true. And and you know need to think of it and the, the dramatic examples we see is you know uh, effects on like Chesapeake and Delaware Bay and cleanup efforts that have been going on over the last two decades to try to roll back those the uh, impacts on those bays uh, and the Gulf of Mexico uh, dead zone off the, off the mouth of the Mississippi River uh, dead zones that have shown up on the uh, in the, from those nitrogen eutrophication uh, on the West Coast and Pacific Coast, but also to understand that it happens at a very small uh, scale, too, that's not dramatic, and that the water quality that uh, is you know, an issue for the entire coastline uh, and, and, and the contribution that nitrogen plays in lowering water quality uh, we, is, uh, is, is, can have chronic effects that are very hard to identify uh, in, uh, in on a point by point basis, but overall, we know that it affects productivity over the long run. So, uh, and it affects uh, beaches where they get all slimy with um, algae growth and stuff, which has an impact on more people go to beaches than go out in the ocean. So it's tied into the whole economy of oceans. So, I mean, basically, what what we need to understand is is that the marine ecology is a uh, off our coast, I mean, you can stand on the beach and you look out to sea and you're looking at a marine wilderness and that there are functions that are attributes of wilderness that uh, are really uh, uh, you know, functions of, in, of the quality of our, that we all depend on and we take for granted uh, and that we have, that have to be now that we now we are reaching a point of scale of human activity uh, in these coastal environments, we need to be paying attention, more attention all the time to what are we doing and what are the effects, and uh, because it's not something we can take for granted anymore. Yeah, the wilderness is an important analogy to make or, or to state because you know fishermen are not like farmers; they can't go out and just count the head of cattle out there and stuff. They um, you know, and it's so complex. The oceans aren't just two-dimensional, you know, uh, land or something that, where you can count the critters standing on the field. You know, you've got changing seasons, changing, you know, all these different cycles that are happening and uh, unknown interactions between uh, different fish that are different, you know, that move around and stuff. It's just, it's, it's just staggering how much we don't know why we're trying to manage. And, uh, and I, I think it's worth mentioning then that the states have become the proving ground initially for mm. addressing these issues. I mean, um, uh, the, the benefits of, um, of uh, open ocean uh, environments for coastal economies has not been lost on state governments. And, uh, and New England has been paving the way. 
Uh, there was uh, the five state governors came together in New England and created uh, the National uh, Northeast Regional Oceans Council. It's called, the acronym is NROC. Uh, the NROC has been meeting for, I think it's in its fourth year. Uh, and, it, and it has a component of state planning agencies, state fishery agencies, and other state agencies that have a uh, uh, have a, uh, uh, a jurisdiction in management of coastal environments. It also has a participation of federal agencies. Um, uh, similar effort has now been launched has been launched in the Mid Atlantic with the, uh, the acronym is MARCO. Uh, the Mid-Atlantic uh, Regional uh, Council on the o- for the Oceans. And there are actually now six uh, compacts of states uh, that are working on ocean planning issues around the country, uh, here in the Atlantic, Gulf of Mexico, Pacific. So the states are start- have, been, have been proactive in addressing planning issues in the marine environment now. Uh, for the last th- several years, and now, uh, and that's being followed now by national uh, attention and the creation of national ocean policy uh, and a whole system for, for creating planning uh, that has been precipitated by executive order by the Obama administration uh, to start initially two years ago, and uh, that process is now well underway, and we're starting to see it happening here in the Northeast, uh, both in New England and the Mid-Atlantic region. Yeah, that national ocean policy that was done by executive order really set the stage for these regional groups to operate, uh, where before it was made part, about the time they were setting it up, um, they, you know, first of all, they, the, the national ocean policy uh, makes the different silos of government, uh, the Coast Guard, the Navy, NOAA, Interior, um, talk to one another and permit their middle managers to share ideas and support each other so that that greatly opens up um, opportunities to solve problems and, and not be, you know, reinventing wheels and things um, or just stupid about some aspect of it. And the other part that went with it was uh, regional listening sessions where um, representatives of those four government agencies went out, well, I guess of the National Ocean Policy Group, went around to the country to get input about from the locals of what's going on, what are the surface truths. And, and this is so important to, uh, this is the essence of planning, is, is to try to get a handle on the, uh, get an idea of the magnitude of the problem and the complexity of the problem. You uh, actually have, have a lot of personal experience with the complexity of the problem, and that Massachusetts is, was one of the states, along with California, that has paved the way in ocean planning with uh, with the state planning effort um, in, in recent years. Uh, you participated in that, didn't you? Well, well, thank you, John. Yes, I was uh, contracted by the Ocean Conservancy and the Conservation Law Foundation and Mass Audubon to build a constituency supportive of ecosystem-based management of uh, Massachusetts state coastal waters and to result in a mass oceans bill, which is a state version of what came two years later as the national ocean policy, in that it was the governor getting um, mandating that the different silos of state government, and there's so many, talk to one another. So prior to that, uh, there was there's this idea for windmills in Nantucket Sound, and the company that wanted to build them had to go through, you know, a bunch of different regulatory agencies. All of them said, go talk to the other one first. And consequently, there's a lot of wasted effort where developers tend to go to our entrepreneurs. You end up talking to the the ones of least resistance first, and that doesn't give them a clear idea of whether this is a a possible project in the first place. So when the uh, Mass Oceans Bill was put through, um, Another example of this was uh, Winthrop wanted a, uh, Winthrop's in the mouth of Boston Harbor, uh, of Mass Bay, where the harbor is, and it's got, it's normally a muddy shore because it's way up in the mouth of the bay, but it uh, wants to have a sandy beach, and so the sand was gone, 
had worn away, and so they've been for years trying to get the state to put sand back on their beach. And finally, the state came and said, we're going to put sand on your beach. And uh, the fisheries people stood up and said, no, you can't take the sand there because that's where the fish are breeding or something. And so the people of Winthrop had to see the fish agency and the um, sand agency, you know, arguing in front of them. And so the purpose of the Nash, of the Mass Ocean Bill is to have those discussions ahead of time so that you don't have to do that. And they managed to, they succeeded in doing that by um, having every agency map out what parts of mass ocean waters are, you know, important to them or fragile and what, what's not fragile. And so there are always overlapping maps. Uh, a developer wanted to run a uh, internet cabling to Martha's Vineyard from, uh, say, Fall River or somewhere on that side of Buzzards Bay. So they had to lay cable across Buzzards Bay, across Vineyard Sound, to the vineyard. And because of the Mass Ocean Act and the planning work that had gone into it, the developer was able to look at those overlapping maps And so when they first met with the state agencies, they could say, okay, we see that the first mile along the shore is um, extremely delicate habitat. So we are prepared to uh, tunnel the cable underneath the first mile. And then we see as we head across, straight across Buzzards Bay, there's a sensitive area in the middle of the bay. So we're prepared to send the the, uh, cable further north and then south. Uh, to get through the Elizabethan Islands and so forth. So they already had a handle on, you know, what are going to be the obstacles uh, to, and this is so important for entrepreneurs, is to know what are the costs of doing it right. Uh, the government has to insist that it's done right so that uh, citizens are not and businesses are not harmed by um, the new activity. <laughs> Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Charter Boat Captain John Williamson. We're talking about the national ocean policy and how it, its emphasis is on participatory, robust planning. I had just given an example of how in Massachusetts that resulted by having everybody draw their own maps and then hand all the maps to the developer and say, okay, you figure out if you can get through this minefield and uh, come to us when you got an idea. And so that worked on that area. 
John, what do you see happening in some of the uh, regional uh, planning groups that have arisen from the national ocean policy? Well, the, uh, I mean, the, 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 the state of the process is that at this point, um, um, the NROC, uh, the Northeast Regional Ocean Council here in New England, which is the state group, and it's the, their counterpart in the Mid-Atlantic, just the Mid-Atlantic Regional Council for the Oceans, Marco. It's really important to emphasize that the, the New England Fisheries Council is a governing body whereas the, the Northeast Regional Ocean Council is a planning body, so that the planning body has no authority to, man, to tell the you know, New England Fisheries Management Council what to do, right? That's correct, and that's a really important point to, yeah. to bring into this. It's not just true for the Fishery Management Council, but, but all these aspects. I mean, the, 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 this regional planning effort is to coordinate the actual uh, uh, governance that takes place uh, in any number of spheres, and not just fisheries, but uh, uh, there are very there are many different state and federal agencies that have jurisdiction in the ocean environment. The planning is meant to coordinate their those regulatory efforts that happen in these different different jurisdictions. So uh, that cannot be. Go ahead. Finish that. The, the intent is not to manage fisheries by a regional by the regional planning body. Fisheries are managed by the Fishery Management Council and the National Fisheries Service. But it's to make sure that fisheries management isn't impeded by other efforts that are going on in other jurisdictions and other spheres. Right, and we had this experience in Boston when they created the Boston Harbor Island National Park because they took all these islands that had been managed by state agencies and, and private groups and said, you're now part of a national park. And, and it was to be governed in partnership. So it's the first national park that has no property. It's just managing the information and planning how to, and not taking any authority away from the landowners. But all the landowners, many of the landowners, especially the government agencies, all took it as a failure, that they must have failed at what they'd done because they were underfunded despite how hard they tried and that were bringing in the 800-pound gorilla from the NPS from Washington. So there was this whole time period of people realizing that, no, this is not a replacement of where you failed. This is a, um, a, a facilitating better communications. And that's what kept the group meeting together once a month was that they started having spin-off relationships. I mean, they, had, they started having spin-off benefits from the meetings because middle managers would know each other from different, like Massport would know somebody for the first time with um, conservation department or something, and so they could, they could have these beneficial, um, normally they'd been in their silos and stuff. So it's, we forget that um, people are used to old systems, and they have to be reminded that this is not... Um, big government coming in and taking away control from local interests. And, 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 and that is a very important point. And frankly, the, the people, the local interest and at the local scale is where the action is. So it's, we have to be able to protect, uh, protect the people's uh, ability to function at that scale. Yeah, and it works very well because the, these ocean councils have public meetings and everyone's encouraged to come and um, there are opportunities to speak up. So, you know, if you're at all interested, then you get engaged in the process and stuff. So the, the, is, first, uh, the first uh, of the regional ocean council uh, uh, planning body, the first of the regional planning body uh, meetings uh, in New England will be happening uh, in November, November 19th and 20th. Um, and um, in Portland, Maine, um, it'll be the launch of the very first of these planning bodies to get up and running uh, in the country. And uh, and it's uh, and and though it's a, it will be uh, government agencies that will be sitting at the table, you know, state and federal agencies that will be sitting at the table. Meaning, is uh, will be open to the public and for us public to come in and listen to what's being discussed and uh, observe uh, how these uh, planning bodies will function. Um, and, and, they're, and they're making, they're bending over uh, 
been making the effort to uh, uh, really make this a public uh, process. They're they're going they're doing outreach to all seg- segments of the of the marine trades and fishing industry that have a stake in planning. Uh, and over the next two years, there's going to be a, a very uh, a very large effort to reach out to uh, all these economic interests in the marine environment and make sure that these you know, all the necessary questions are on the table so that, uh, that they can be addressed in the planning process. Right. Yeah, it's really transparent and participatory. An interesting side story is that when we passed the Mass Oceans Act, uh, it was put to coastal zone management to organize all the different government agencies and get the produce a document, you know, produce a plan. And put in charge of all of that was Darren Babrod from CZM. And uh, so Darren would have to do these dog and pony shows. We'd go out to these different groups and list all the things, and they'd say to him, "Yeah, and what if it don't work?" You know, and Darren would say, "Well, then I'll be a stern man again." <laughs> and now the stern it must have worked because he's not a stern man now. Darren Babrod is now heading up the National Ocean Policy. So when he sends stuff out, it's on the president's stationery, you know, the executive office stationery, because this is. So I guess he did he's doing okay. Well, apparently he's done something right, but the. Uh... I, it is. Well, worth though, you know. There are no. It's worth saying though that there are no guarantees that this process will produce uh, the best results. The, and the, but the only route to getting the best results is to have a very rigorous participation by uh, by the public and uh, especially the marine user community uh, to ensure that uh, the process works for uh, for all of us. Yeah, uh, uh, and achieves optimum results, uh, but results are not guaranteed unless we all show up. That's right. You need to participate, and it's more, it's more easy to guarantee them because there's not a time limit. If they can't get it together, they'll just take longer. You, you know, there's no shortcuts. You got to do the sausage making. You got to work out how we're going to make this work. Um, and you can't just say, you know, by fiat, this is the way it's going to be. It's got to be consensual. And then, frankly, there is no roadmap for getting there either. I mean, this is the, uh, we've been doing planning in the terrestrial sphere for for a hundred years. Uh, uh, you know about planning at the municipal scale and at the county scale and at the state scale, but uh, planning for ocean resources is. A wide open frontier in governance, and uh, and so that and these governance mechanisms, these planning mechanisms, will are are, are still evolving. Yeah, because in the Harbor Island case, there were landowners, and so that those are the, the the big players. But we're now talking the public resource, the ocean, and we have no clue who the users. We don't. Well, we do have a clue, but there there may be important users that we're not aware of. Um, that need to come forward, which is why they're doing all this outreach and effort. On the other hand, because it had to be, the National Ocean Policy had to be created by executive order because it's just not realistic to expect a Congress to reach agreement on such a thing. Um, however, it, that means that it has the, the, the stamp of a Democratic president on it. And uh, should the election go a different way, um, the, the policy is going to need a lot of support to, to survive. Um, there's already efforts in, in Congress to, uh, to undo it uh, because they feel that Congress should create it, not the president. Uh, so the, there's a, a lot of political battles that need, I mean, people need, if, they, if you care for this, you need to speak up. There'll be times when you need to speak up because um, it's not like setting up Social Security where once you got it, it's going. But nonetheless, whoever, no matter who is in the White House, the uh, the need for planning and these the the uh, conflicts that will arise if we don't do adequate planning, that those things are there and they will and they will be increasingly there as the as the years go by. So planning it for the environment is inevitable. Excuse me. And and the program needs some funding from government and. It's, it's, you know, who 
whoever is president, it's going to be difficult for them to, to they need support in getting, you know, in uh, funding the uh, national ocean policy. Uh, it, to finish up, it's also worth pointing out that we, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are of our ocean environments that are still uh, on the horizon that we're just beginning to be aware that the signals for climate change are just beginning to be felt in, in the ocean environments. We're starting to see the effects of, of uh, global warming and climate change on, uh, on the distribution of fish stocks and the uh, in the Baseline productivity of ocean environments uh, are being affected. And specifically, we're seeing an increase in some a little increase in temperature and an increase in acidity. Uh, increase in uh, ocean acidity is uh, it, it, it's it, it's unclear whether that signal is starting is showing itself yet, but it's certainly something that will be increasingly an issue for ocean productivity in the future. Uh, temperatures, uh, uh, water temperatures along the eastern seaboard are definitely rising. They're causing uh, the change uh, of uh, fish of fish stocks and fish distribution. Yeah, fish, uh, fish species that are at the northern uh, end of their range are that range is moving north. Fish species that are at the southern end of that range, there that range is moving north. So we're starting to see species that we've never seen before in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, people were catching scup this summer. Oh, my gosh. Black sea bass. Oh. Uh, one, one fisherman was telling me he was getting summer flounder uh, in, uh, off of uh, Hampton Beach uh, last week. And wow. summer flounder are distinctly a, uh, uh, found you know, south of, of Cape Cod. So... These things are changing. The things are changing, and how that will affect things like the lobster fishery over time, we don't know. We but, don't uh, know. But planning, John, we're running out of time for the program, or for the for yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to have to close it up. I want to thank you, John Williamson, for um, speaking with us, and um, John. It's a long and ongoing conversation, Rob. <laughs> well, we'll have to do it again, and I think we will in just a couple episodes from now. Um, uh, I'd like to have you back and talk some more. Um, a lot of wonky talk today. We need to have some more individual fish talk and stuff like that that our listeners love to hear, too. So I think we'll reward them with that in a future show soon to come. Well, maybe we can do it from the deck of my boat. There you go. As long as we have a good telephone connection, we're okay. All right. Well, thanks for the opportunity. John Williamson, thank you very much. And for everyone listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, thank you for listening today. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Rock, rock, rock.